Thank you, Ethan. Good morning, Wilshire, and welcome to the Lord's Table today. Normally, this is the moment where communion takes place, and I get up and I talk for three to five minutes about some sort of communion talk, and then we share communion. Well, today's text from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is about communion. And so today's sermon is about communion. So I thought, why not kill two birds with one stone and do the communion talk and sermon all in one, and then we take communion? Thank you, because other people were worried I was about to do two sermons. Relax. You just get one extra, extra long sermon. That's not true. So, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I want to talk about what's going on in the church at Corinth and what that has to do with communion, because Paul ties it directly in to what we're about to do and what we do every Lord's Day. But before we do that, i got to tell you one of my favorite stories from Wilshire. It happened several years ago. It was a Sunday morning, and I walked up to the pulpit to do comments about communion. And I wanted to take everybody's mind and focus it on the text of 1 Corinthians. And so, when you're speaking and you're writing stuff, you always think, what can capture their attention and drive them to the point that you want them to hear? And so I got into the pulpit, and I began by saying, how do you mess up communion? Ruthie? What I did not know is that on that particular Sunday, someone had forgotten to fill the communion cups. And Cliff... And Ruthie caught wind of what was going on, and they were panicking, trying to fill the communion cups during the communion talk. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to fill communion cups up, but it's this little annoying plastic thing back when we used the little cups. And you would fill it, and you would stand over each cup, and you would push the little button, and it would put the juice in, and you'd stop, move to the next. Well, I don't remember how many communion cups were prepared, 200 or so. And so someone has to stand there and fill 200 communion cups. And me, in my innocent, well-meaning moment, started by saying, how do you mess up communion? And Ruthie thought I was calling them out. And she told me afterwards, I thought, how dare he? Call us out from the pulpit. It took Ruthie a while to get over that. I'm still not sure she's fully over that. And every now and then when I take communion, Ruthie, I think of you chewing me out. How do you mess up communion? Well, our brothers and sisters in Corinth found a way to do it. And so as you begin reading 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you find that Paul has been dealing with some issues leading up to this moment in the book. And he's going to center their mind on the solution that is shared when we take communion. If you remember last week, 
Jim gave a wonderful sermon on this concept. It's, it's back in chapter 9, and this, this language and this phrase that knowledge puffs up, but love does what? It builds up. Because they had had this problem in Corinth with people who had a certain level of knowledge. And they used that knowledge to say, well, that makes me better than everybody else. That makes me more spiritual than everyone else. And that means that I can do things that maybe may make you uncomfortable, but I know better. And specifically in Corinth, that issue was, can I eat meat that's been offered to an idol? Because if you were out of a Gentile past, you knew that most meat came from a temple where they offered sacrifices and you invited family and friends and neighbors to sit and to take that meat as a participation in the worship of some deity. And what usually would happen from time to time is there would be far more meat than was left over, and so you could go to the marketplace and you could purchase some of that meat. I don't know how they marketed it, how, they, how you knew it was from the temple, but eating meat was not a common occurrence in the first century world because it was an expensive endeavor. But you could get it from the temple. And so in the church at Corinth, you had people who said, look, I can't eat that meat because I know where it's been. It's been offered to a deity in worship, and I can't do that. That was my old life, and when I take that, I feel like I'm sharing in that worship of the deity, and I don't think that's right. But you had some other people in the church who said, well, I know better. There's no such thing as any other God than the one true God. And so they may have eaten it, in worship to some deity, but you know that that deity is not real. You know that there's nothing behind that. So grow up. Eat the meat. It's not going to hurt anybody. In fact, they were so confident in their knowledge that they they would eat meat, it seems, just to prove that they were spiritually strong. And they didn't care that their brother really struggled with that and their sister really couldn't get past that. And they said, I'm a more spiritual person than you and I'm going to prove it. And if you can't live with it, too bad. You are not going to infringe on my spiritual rights. And that's where the sermon from last Sunday was built. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, he said, if, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I won't even touch it as long as the world stands. Because Jesus died for my brother. The least I can do is give up a steak. And then in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul walks through the way he does ministry in general. Paul knows, he has the knowledge, I know that I have the right to have a wife as an apostle, just like Peter does. But I don't. I gave up that right. Paul knows that he has every right 
to be paid for his efforts in missions. But he said, I gave up that right. So it's not a stumbling block for the church in Corinth. And so as chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians comes to a close, Paul says that his way of ministry is that I become all things to all men so that I might by all means win some people to Christ. So then you hit chapter 10, and it looks like for a moment that Paul has given us a reprieve from the argument and that Paul has decided to talk about something else. And it sounds like he's moved on to different topics, and he starts for a minute to talk about Old Testament stories. And so that's where our scripture reading came from. But if you look closely enough, Paul hasn't left the topic. In fact, the way he approaches the topic gets a little more intense. I want to show you what I mean by that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul begins talking about Old Testament stories. I don't think they had VBS or Bible class in Corinth, but if they did, the kids would have picked up on these famous stories. Because as Paul starts to talk in chapter 10, he reminds them about the Old Testament, which is really interesting because most of Corinth, we think, is made up of people who didn't grow up going to synagogue. They weren't Jews. Corinth was a very mixed place, intercultural community, primarily made up of non-Jewish people. But Paul says, think about our forefathers. Do you remember the story when they crossed the Red Sea? You remember studying that? The kid, VBS. You remember what it was like? It's, it's back there in Exodus. Read Exodus 12, 13, and 14. You'll find the story that God delivers them out of Egypt, the plague of the firstborn. They leave and, and they camp between Egypt and the Red Sea. And Pharaoh sees them out there, and Pharaoh thinks they're sitting ducks. And he goes after them. The children of Israel... Look at the sea on one side and the coming Egyptian army on the other side, and they think they're sitting ducks. And they go to Moses and they say, Moses, was it just that there was not enough graves in Egypt that you delivered us out of there to bring us out? We're going to die. And I love the way the story unfolds. Moses says, don't worry. God's going to show you his salvation. God's going to deliver you. And Moses calls out to God and God says, what are you asking me for? So I think for a moment, Moses thinks they're sitting ducks. But God says, stretch out your staff. And the children of Israel walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And there's a moment in that story where, where the text says that this cloud that represented the presence of God, the cloud moved from the front of the Israelites to the back of the Israelites, to separate the Israelites from the coming Egyptian army. The angel of the Lord went forward, the cloud went between them, and there was this protective presence of God over the people. And even when you turn to Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21, Moses 
tells this story. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. That cloud was the covering and protection and blessing of God. You remember that story? Do you remember the other, the more stories when they get out into the wilderness and the children of Israel complain again and they, they play the old line like they have before? Did, were there not enough graves? Was the, was the cemeteries too empty back in Egypt? Was the funeral home business too slow in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here? Because they were thirsty. They thought they were going to die of thirst, that God did all of this only to take them out in the wilderness and they die of thirst. And two times in the Old Testament story of the Exodus, God gives them water out of a rock. First one's in Exodus chapter 17 at Marabah. They're crying, we're going to die of thirst. And there Moses strikes the rock and God provides an abundance of water. It happens again in the book of Numbers. Moses then strikes the rock and takes glory for that. But, but God gave them something to drink. There was a rabbinic tradition that said that rock from the first time back in Exodus 17 at Marabah, that that rock actually followed Israel through the wilderness. That's kind of a cool image, isn't it? Anybody seen the rock? Yeah, it's out there. He'll be here in a minute to bring us water. There's this rabbinic tradition that said this rock followed him in the wilderness. Now, I told you, you think for a moment that Moses has left the topic of eating meat offered to an idol. That Moses has just gone into story time and talking about Old Testament stories. But look at 1 Corinthians 10 again. He says, Our ancestors were under the cloud, passed through the sea, and he calls that their baptism. That when, when they were in the water and covered by the cloud, they were baptized into Moses. It's not usually how you use the word baptized, but it's an interesting way. They were immersed in the presence of God. They were immersed by water to some extent because clouds, water, and the Red Sea water. They were baptized. Okay, Paul, I'll give you that. And he, he says they all drank from the same spiritual rock. Paul says, which was Christ. I love that because he's like, all right, I'll take your rabbinic tradition and say it followed them around, but you need to know that rock was actually Jesus that was supplying them with water all along their trip. And if you're listening to 1 Corinthians and the way Paul tells this story, you'll find that Paul is making this argument that our experience is Israel's experience. All of them were baptized. All of them had the presence and protection of God with them. That's what the cloud was. All of them ate and drank because of the blessing of God. 
That's Israel's story. All ate and drank, all were protected, all were baptized. And hasn't he said that about the church in Corinth and about all of us? In Corinth, all of the people there who were in Christ, they've all been baptized. That's what they were arguing about in chapter 1. They were arguing over who baptized them. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. I was baptized by the guy who started this church, or I was baptized by Peter. They were arguing about their baptism. They've all been baptized. He says in chapter 6, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Just as Israel was baptized, you've been baptized. (coughs) All of them had the same protection and presence of God in their lives. Israel had it because that's what the cloud represented. The Corinthians have it, and you and I have it, because Paul says that the Spirit of God dwells within you. That we are the temple of the living God. All of us have the same thing Israel had. An Israelite... Because of the goodness of God. Now, he implicitly says this because we know the story of the Exodus where God fed them in the wilderness. With the manna, the quail. God was feeding his people. They drank from the water. What do we do when we surround the table? We are eating what God has given us. So if you're listening to Paul, he's he's pretty he's pretty sneaky in this. We've been baptized, they've been baptized. We have the spirit and the presence of God in our life, they had the cloud and the presence of God in their life. They walk out in the wilderness and God fed them and we sit at the table with the Lord and God feeds us. And that's where things take a turn. Because he's lulled us into believing that that makes us a special people. And that means that we are free to do whatever we want. And that, in some people's mind, means that we are beyond and above temptation. And so Paul reaches back. And he gives them some more stories. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that all these things, verse 6, occurred as examples to us that we might not desire evil as they did. Yes, they were baptized. Yes, they had the presence of God in their life. Yes, they ate and drank from from the hand of God. But look what happened to them. And he recalls some more stories from the Old Testament. And notice this interesting back and forth, this interesting contrast. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, he says, They all were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized. They all drank. Every one of them. 
And yet, beginning in verse 7, some of them became idolaters. Some of them put God to the test. And some of them were killed by serpents. And he's recounting Old Testament stories. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he's got the Ten Commandments, remember, in his hands. And he looks out and he sees that they've, they've created this golden calf because they basically said, I think the mountain has eaten Moses or something. It's been 40 days, we haven't heard from him, so let's build a golden calf and we'll worship that as our God. And that text, Paul says, they ate and drank and they rose up to play and God killed them. And then he recounts another time, this weird story. We won't go into detail because of the children, but in Beth Peor, they're out in the wilderness and they meet the ladies and they go and they offer sacrifice to Baal and they rise up and they do things that go against what God had called them to. The same people who had been baptized, who had been blessed with the presence of God, who had eaten by the hand of God, also chose to go out and sacrifice to idols, participate in that event, and then their lives turned around against God, and God killed them. All were baptized, all were protected, all ate and drank, some of them went a different way. And so, Paul brings the story around. Isn't that interesting? Everything we share in common with the people of the Old Testament, our baptism, God's presence, our eating and drinking. Are we going to share the second part of their story? Is it possible to have all of those blessings in God and still be cast out? Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Don't think that you are standing above all of those temptations. The old King James says, let him who thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. It happened to them that they forgot what it, mean, what it means to be the people of God. They took all of those blessings and yet they went out and they participated with other gods and participated in all of the other things. And because of that, they fell into idolatry and sexual immorality. Have you been listening to the story of Corinth? Chapter 5 and 6, sexual immorality was running rampant in that church. Yeah, but Paul, we've been baptized. But yeah, Paul, we've got the Spirit of God. Yeah, Paul, we take communion. And yet, just like Israel... Your sexual lives aren't honoring God. Do you see the parallel here? And now someone comes along and says, I know that that 
God is nothing, and I know that that temple is nothing, so I am free to eat meat that's been offered to an idol. I can even sit in the temple because my knowledge has told me I'm beyond that. And Paul says, do you hear yourself? You sound just like the Israelites who said, we've been baptized, we've got the cloud in our side, we've eaten and drinking by the hand of God, so sure, go offer sacrifices at Beth Peor. Sure, you can break out into revelry at the, ba- at the base of Mount Sinai. Do you not hear yourself? Somehow in Corinth, they saw this table as making them better and beyond all temptations. And they saw this table as this get-out-of-jail-free card. I ate the bread, I drank the cup, idolatry is not a problem for me, sexual immorality is not my issue, in fact, it's not even a problem God doesn't care about those things. Let anyone who thinks they stand take heed lest you fall. Don't think that this table absolves you from any other decision you make through the week. Don't think because you eat the cracker and drink the juice that you can continue living like the world around you. Because this table says, God has called you beyond that. God has called you above that. And that's where chapter 10 makes the explicit turn and the explicit connection to what we do in communion. Paul says in verse 15, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the sharing in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I'm implying that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to a god. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot participate in the table of the Lord and the table of demons? Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, now it's obvious. Now Paul pulls back the subtlety. Your knowledge may tell you that that temple And those sacrifices are to a God that really doesn't exist. Paul says, I'll give you that. But demons are real. And you're playing around in that temple and you're playing around with those things. And that God's not real, but Satan is alive and at work in that temple. And you're messing with demons. And you've sat at the table of the Lord. So don't play in Satan's playground. 
Because when you share this table, you are actually participating with God and His work in this world. You are sharing in what God is trying to do in reversing the curse. You are committing yourself to being part of the kingdom of God that is fixing the world. So don't stand up from this table and walk out and continue to participate in the cycle of brokenness. Because you committed yourself at this table to reversing that curse through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there are so many different views of communion in the religious world. And there are so many different views of communion, even in the Lord's church. Good-hearted, well-meaning people will sometimes have such a busy schedule that they think, I just, as long as I go to church and I take communion, maybe I'll come in after the opening song, after the opening prayer, I'll, I'll take communion and then I'll leave right after communion because all that time with my brethren and all that fellowship with the church isn't really important. All that's important is that I took communion this week. Don't buy that lie. Because this bread and this cup are committing you to the work of God in this world. This bread and this cup are committing you to the church for which Jesus died. This isn't a magic potion. This isn't some absolving you of the bad choices you've made in the past week or are planning to make in the week to come. This is the body and blood of Jesus. And you are participating in God's work in the world at this table. Paul says all those things were written as an example to us. For the people of God. Don't make the same mistakes they did. God always promises his presence if we'll just trust him. Two things quickly just to wrap things up. The first, even though Israel had all of those blessings, and Paul makes this contrast between all were baptized, all were covered in the cloud, and all ate and drank, he says some of them, fell into temptation. Some of them went to idolatry. Some of them went into sexual immorality. But his point is, not all of them did. And so that's what brings him around to this statement. Verse 13 of chapter 10. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. There's hope. You don't have to do that. You don't have to fall away. God has given you a way out. When I was a kid and our family was going through some terrible things, my grandfather used to quote this text. It says, God will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able to endure and My grandpa would say, sometimes I just wish the Lord didn't think so much of me. There is always 
a way out. And if you're not a, if you are a Christian today and you have found your faith going in the direction of Israel and the sum who left the Lord, we want to pray for you and help you to not be one of those. If you're not a, if you're not a Christian this morning, we're going to offer the invitation so that you too can participate in the same baptism and the same presence and protection of God and in the same sharing in the food that God gives us. And if you need to do that this morning, we invite you to come while we stand and sing. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight.